Yeah, we're not going to need that fan on that high. If you could maybe do it down a little bit because it's like, that's going to be it's chilly enough as it is. I'm in a short sleeve shirt here. Heavenly Father, as we open our Bibles this morning, I ask that you would speak to us. I ask that you would speak through me. I surrender to you to have your way within me and within this church. Lord, teach us whatever it is that you would have us learn from the Bible this morning. I thank you for the authority that the Bible is. It is your word to us. It is truth. It is reality. And we need the Holy Spirit's illumination of the Bible. Apply it to our hearts. Lord, create in us a clean heart to create in this church a pure church, a holy church. In Jesus' name we pray this morning. Amen. Get your Bibles out, turn to Acts chapter 5, or your phones, go there. As we are doing with this particular sermon series, I'm just going to read the entire chapter. Acts chapter 5. But a man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it. And laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You've not lied to men, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came upon all who heard it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold this land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. Now many signs and wonders were great were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. And they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. So even they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. But the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is, the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. 
When they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Now when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council and all the sin of Israel and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison. So they returned and reported, we found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now, when the captain of the temple, the chief priest heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to. And someone came and told them, look, the men you, whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council. And the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you, were, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, men of Israel, take care what you're about to do with these men. For before these days, Theodos rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed. And all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So he took his advice, and when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple, from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. Do you guys need more lights in there? Is it too dark for you? I'm sensing this. Roger? Can we get more lights in here, or is that not even possible? It's as bright as they are. Okay. There we go. Okay. Well, Don, we're going to have to fix that. It's just so dark outside, you know. It's just like, I'm like, okay, this is really bright right here. It's kind of bothering my eyes, but man, it's just... I could sense it was dark out there. Anyways, okay. So, let's talk about this. We're going to look at this passage, okay, this whole chapter, but we're going to look at it in reverse. We're going to start from the end and work our way up to the beginning. So I want to talk about, first of all, and we're going to go through this really fast until we get to the third point, which will be where we spend most of our time this morning. Per last week's sermon, we're talking about being toughened up. Last week's sermon, we talked about What? Suffering and how our society has so ill prepared us to suffer. We are, and particularly the younger generation, they are dangerously fragile. Okay? So when we read a story of suffering like we did last week in Acts chapter 4, it's, we can't relate to it. But God is working in his people in this chapter 5. If you remember John chapter 15, verse 20, it talks about how Jesus said, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me and they persecuted Jesus, they will also persecute you. And that's exactly what happened. In Acts chapter 4, verse 21, it says that the 
high priests, the Sadducees, when they had threatened them further, they let them go, finding no basis on which to punish them on account of the people, because they were all glorifying God for what had happened. And now we read in Acts chapter 5, verse 40, same thing. They're taken into captivity, but what happens this time? They beat them. So you have a verbal threat in Acts chapter 4, and now in Acts chapter 5, a verbal threat followed with physical punishment or a beating. What is God doing? That's the the key point I want to bring out to you here as you read this story. He's preparing them. He is toughing them up because very soon someone's going to lose their life. Stephen is going to lose his life and the church is going to have to be scattered according to God's plan because, again, the gospel, the message is supposed to be taken where? First in Jerusalem, then in Judea. They weren't taking it to Judea and Samaria. So guess what God used to fulfill his plan? Suffering, persecution, to send them out and then to the entire world. Okay? So God is toughing them up. And that's what God does in our lives, through trials and through tests. He's increasing your tolerance to pain. You can take it. That's exactly what he's doing here. I also want to talk about signs and wonders in evangelism. One of the things you notice in this passage is that there was a lot of signs and wonders. And so I have a question for you. We've talked about this suffering and signs and wonders last few weeks, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, but why did Jesus and their early church, why did they proclaim the gospel with a demonstration of power? Why was there the, the gospel was proclaimed and there was a sign and wonder? It was a healing or a casting out of a demon, okay, why, some sort of miracle. Why did they do that? Well, one of the things is, yes, they were demonstrating that the power of the kingdom of God. Remember that? We talked about that. The kingdom of God had come, and in his kingdom, his perfect kingdom, there is no sickness and no death. So they're driving out, advancing his kingdom by casting out demons, by raising the dead, by healing people of sicknesses. Okay? That's evidence that the kingdom of God had had come. Not in its fullness yet, but it had come. But there's another reason why they would proclaim the gospel... And it would be coupled with a demonstration of power. Do you know what that is? I would expect you to know, but can the answer kind of lies right here. You see, that these are steps of, of that uh, professor here from Wheaton College, James Engle, came up with. It's that when you are talking to people that have no concept of God, that is all of us at one point in time, and eventually we grow an awareness of God, Maybe you have contact with Christians, and maybe there might be some interest in Jesus Christ, and so you have questions about him, and you start to understand some stuff. And this is kind of when the gospel is being shared, and then you kind of accept Christian truth, and then eventually you come to a decision to Christ. So your step one is here, and you're to step ten where you become a Christian. You believe in the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you're saved. And then you kind of grow into a disciple. So he has it here. You're on the fringe. You become a friend of Jesus, then you're in the family of God. You're learning the basics of your faith, you're sharing your faith, and there's this ongoing growth. Okay? Now, there are, in this particular model, 16 steps. How long does it take to go from here to here? It depends, but typically it takes a while, doesn't it? I would say that some of us, we get right here and we don't go much further than that, which is not good either. But this is the rest of your life and into eternity with God. But the idea of of no awareness of God to where you are being a disciple, that's a long process. So you can sit there and you can share the gospel with people, which is what we're, we're trained us to do. And it takes people time, right? Do you know what the average number of times a person needs to hear the gospel message before they understand it? Do you know what the statistics say? It's seven times, according to the Billy Graham Institute. So you're with me so far. Now watch this. What do you think 
might take someone from here and accelerate them to here. Signs and wonders. You are having no awareness of God. You hear someone on a college campus or somewhere, you hear someone talk about God. You then witness the power of God. And you see someone that was, maybe you've known to be a, in a wheelchair, and now they're just walking fine. And they claimed, and you saw them that they were healed. What might that do to your curiosity about God? You're also going to move pretty quickly up here to where you're being forced to make a decision. That's what you see in this chapter, don't you? Signs and wonders were happening with the proclamation of the gospel, and what was happening? What does the text say? The people, the Lord added greatly to their numbers. You see that? Men, women, children. People were believing. Well, why were they believing so quickly? Why were they going from here to here? They heard the message, and they saw the miracles. So the miracles, the signs and wonders, proved the authenticity of the message. You're telling me that a guy actually died and was raised from the dead, and he's in heaven? Then you see someone healed of a sickness or raised from the dead or a demon cast out, and a person who is deformed is now no longer, and you're doing it in this guy's name, in Jesus' name. Guess what you might tend to believe? in this person, that this claim is true. And that's what they call just the Engel scale of, of someone coming to Christ. Now listen to this, because I think you relate to this. Charles Kraft, as a, a former pastor and, and professor of theology, he struggled with this idea of signs and wonders and effective witnessing. He was a, a missionary in Africa. And he said, as missionaries, we were well prepared in theological cultural and linguistic studies. Now, what does that mean? They knew the theology. They knew the gospel message. They understood the culture. They were trained in, in the way of, uh, of culture in this particular part of Africa where they were. The foods, the way that people communicated, the customs, okay? They understood the language. They actually could speak, if it was Swahili, they, they would, could speak enough Swahili that they could relate to the people. The big thing is, is that everyone else was, was black, they were white, so they kind of stood out. But they were missionaries, sent by their church. He says, as evangelicals, however, we were totally unprepared to deal with one area that, in this case, the Nigerians considered most important. And this is true, I've been to Africa, and still true today, their relationships with the spirit world. Time after time, Nigerians would turn our discussions to the disruption in their lives they claimed were caused by evil spirits. Such things as disease, accidents, death, infertility, drought, were all seen as the work of evil entities. Now, does that sound familiar? It's from the Bible, right? And it's, it's, it's right here, and we just read in Acts chapter 4, a man was healed in the name of Jesus. So, we, we, we see that. We read about that, and yet that is not a reality in America, is it? You are sick. Your mind is trained to think of what? Doctors. Medicine. When it isn't available to you, you think a little differently. We're a reason-based culture. In Africa, it's a power-based culture. And so what happens is, he says, is that though the, and here it is, though the Nigerian church leaders decided that a primary strategy would be to focus on God's conquest of the spirits through Christ to grow the church, it says, neither my anthropological nor my biblical training had provided me with any constructive approaches to meet their felt needs. In other words, I didn't know how to access the power of God. I didn't know how to pray for healing. I didn't know how to drive out a demon. If there was a manifestation of evil spirit, I was utterly unprepared to deal with it. Here it is. While power was preached by the Nigerian leaders, 
it was never demonstrated. Is this me? It's going off. Blame it on Frank. Everyone just look at Frank, make him feel bad, okay? Are we good now? Okay. So while power was preached by the Nigerian leaders, it was never demonstrated. You guys listening to me? As missionaries, we had brought a powerless message to a very power-conscious people. little spiritual warfare here. What's going on? Do I need a new uh, mic? Is that good? All right, who touched that back there? That's what I want to know. All right, well, let's keep going, all right? Well, that's a nice, I had a nice story going. You guys were listening to me. I had your attention. Anyways, as missionaries, we had brought a powerless message to very power-conscious people. The result of this was what he called a dual allegiance. You had people that had, had made a decision for Christ that were loyal to Christianity to handle certain needs. But it was combined with a continued, a continued loyalty to traditional religious practices to handle the power needs. Which is a nice way of saying is they had people going to the Christian church and also going to the witch doctor. Now, we know what the truth is, but that was never being presented. These, he was a missionary raised in an evangelical church that was void of the power of God. Do you remember me talking about this? He was raised in, a, in an enlightenment Christianity culture, which is what we have all been raised in. Okay, reason is, has been the way that we understand reality. It wasn't the way in, in previous to us, previous times, particularly New Testament times, and in Africa. I think this was... A Christian Missionary Alliance Church, if I remember correctly, he was associated with that. Now, what they will, I'm going to add some to the story here. What they found out was, was that the, the Assemblies of God Church, that had access to the power of God, that believed in the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and all of that, they were the ones that were effective in building churches and taking the gospel, and even charismatic churches, to other parts of the world. Because it's a power world. So in other words, a logical presentation of the gospel. If God moved, certainly they're going to come to Christ because the gospel is the power of God to salvation for those who believe. But to deal with the evil spirits that, that, that have been passed on to them, the, the sickness, to read about that in the New Testament and then not to be able to take it and apply it, it was a powerless gospel. And that is what we experience in the American church, but it is not what we read in here, is it? It's not what we were reading in the book of Acts. So to move people along to a decision to Christ in a much quicker pace, the, the pattern has always been proclaim the gospel, you've got to know that message, and then there's a demonstration of power. So you with me so far? Okay. Now, we're going to spend the most of our time talking about a pure church. This is the first part of Acts chapter 5. Now, Acts chapter 4 was the first persecution that the early church had faced. Peter and John, remember the man was healed outside of Solomon's portico and they were taken in. We just read part of that. Okay? And they were simply threatened and let go. So how did Satan attack this new movement called the church? We attacked it from the outside with persecution. What does he do now? It's Acts chapter 5. He switches his strategy. And how does he attack the church? From the inside. Through corruption. You see that? Now, I wanted to spend some time, real briefly, I went over this a, couple, a year or two ago. But it's important that we understand a little bit about Satan. This is kind of a little reminder for us, but how does Satan work? Well, we know that, for example, 
There's a lot in a person's name that tells you about their character. These are some of the names of Satan in the Bible that tells us who he is. You can see those names, but he's obviously one of our adversaries. He slanders. I mean, he, he likes to lie about you. Have you ever been slandered someone's lied about you? Who is behind all of that? It is not God. It is the devil. He deceives. He's one who destroys. He corrupts and is a corrupter. And he's both a destroyer. Okay? There's also names indicate his activity, kind of what he does. Because that's who he is, he's going to tempt to sin. He's going to accuse. Satan accuses us day and night before God. Did you know that? He obviously is a deceiver. And he's the one who's at work in, in unbelievers, the sons of disobedience, to act the way they do, to do the things that they do. This is why we need to recognize this, and this, this story gives us the opportunity to look at this verse. We need to be understanding and know, and even to an extent, anticipate the schemes of the devil. He will take advantage of us. But as Paul says, we're not ignorant of his schemes. Now, it's important for you to realize, I'm going to quote a first time ever in any sermon, George Whitfield, famous, older, legendary, in one sense, Christian. He wrote this, just listen, but Satan is most known for his remarkable ability to use his cleverness against mankind. Since he has not given power from God to take us by force. And I want you to understand that. He has no power over you other than what God allows him. He's been disarmed. He is therefore required to wait for opportunities to betray us. To catch us by the use of deception. He and his evil accomplices, his other evil spirits, are described in the New Testament as being cunning and crafty in their deceitful scheming. We are in more danger, he writes, of being seduced by his system of deception than overpowered by his strength. Now, this is exactly, as we look at the beginning of Acts chapter 5, what Satan does with Ananias and Sapphira. They have the unique and sad distinction of being the first ones to bring sin into the church. And they will forever be known by it. So let me give you a little bit of historical context before we go to Acts chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. In Acts chapter 4, this is what's happening in verses 32 and 37. It says, Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and great grace was upon them all. For there was not a needy person among them. For all who were owners of lands or houses would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sales. And lay them at the apostles' feet and they would be distributed to each as any had need. Now Joseph, a Levite of Cyprian birth, who was also called Barnabas by the apostles, which translated means son of encouragement, and who owned a tract of land, sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' So what we see here at the end of Acts chapter 4 is a church that's remarkable. It's remarkable because of verse 32, it was unified. It's remarkable because it says in verse 33, it's devotion to just preach the gospel. It was remarkable because it was being showered with God's power and grace. Verse 33. In other words, God was pouring out his blessings on this church. And it was remarkable because everybody looked at everything that they had and saw it as belonging to whoever needed it more than they did. So in other words, they had a proper understanding of possessions. Now that is a church, the way God wants a church to be. And so in roughly two months' time, if you add up the numbers mentioned in the book of Acts of new believers factoring in women and children, Remember, there were 120 in the upper room, maybe 500 that believed by the time Jesus ascended to heaven. Right now, the number is somewhere between 15 to 20,000 believers now. 
your first megachurch. But as chapter 4 ends, unfortunately, chapter 5 begins. And it begins with a contrast. One could say we move from the sharing of the saints in chapter 4 to the sinning of the saints in chapter 5. As Satan executes his new strategy. Acts 5, 1 and 2. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. With his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. What's happening here is people are just generously selling their possessions to be used by the church for the needy. Now, what was happening is this was happening with the full knowledge of the congregation. They're bringing it before the laying at the apostles' feet. You know, it was in front of everybody. Ananias and Sapphira, as we know, from Acts chapter 5, they were not under any obligation to give the full amount, by the way. Peter mentions that in verse 4. They hold back some of the proceeds. Now, let me explain some context here. Everyone turn your Bibles to Joshua chapter 7. Joshua chapter 7. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua. In the Old Testament, near the beginning. The word that, that Luke uses here, kept back, it's only found one other time in the Old Testament. It's in Joshua chapter 7. Are you there? But the people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things. For Achan, the son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, from Gig Harbor, took some of the devoted things, and the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is near Beth-Avon, east of Bethel, and said to them, Go up and spy out the land. And the men came, went up, and spied out I, and they returned to Joshua and said to him, Do not have all the people go up, but let about two or three thousand men go up and attack I. Do not take the whole people toil up there. Do not make the whole people toil up there, for they are few. So about three thousand men went up from the people, and they fled before the men of I. And the men of I killed about thirty-six of their men and chased them before the gate as far as Shebarim and struck them at the descent. The hearts of the people melted and became as water. Then Joshua tore his clothes and fell to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until the evening. He and the elders of Israel, and they put their dust in their heads, and they put dust in their heads. Joshua said, Alas, O Lord God, why have you brought this people over the Jordan at all to give us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us? Would that we have been content to dwell between the Jordan? O Lord, what can I say? When Israel was turned, has turned their backs before their enemies. For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear of it and will surround us and cut off our name from the earth. And what will you do for your great name? In other words, they were inheriting the promise. Remember that story of Exodus and going through the Moses and all the plagues and all that. Moses is gone. Now Joshua is leading the people. And God is going before them in fulfilling his promise, giving him the inherited land. He is their defender. He is their fighter. He is the one who is with them. And they're taking the land. They're expanding God's kingdom in one sense. This is the first time they've ever faced defeat. Well, why? Well, verse 10. The Lord said to Joshua, get up. Why have you fallen on your face? Israel has sinned. They have transgressed or sinned my covenant that I commanded them. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen and lied and put them among their own belongings. Therefore, the people of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. Well, eventually, the source of the corruption is identified as Achan. Look at verse 19. Joshua says to Achan, My son, give glory to the Lord God of Israel and give praise to him. And tell me now what you have done. Do not hide it from me. And Achan answered Joshua, Truly, I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel. This is what I did. 
When I saw among the spoil a beautiful cloak from Shinar and 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels, then I coveted them and took them. And see, they're hidden in the earth under, inside my tent with the silver underneath. So in other words, Achan knew that he was commanded by God to not take any of the spoils of war that were devoted to destruction. But he's overcome with what? Greed. So he secretly disobeys. And the story ends with Achan, by the way, he was stoned to death, it says, by all Israel. Verse 25. And only after Achan had been singled out and killed did the blessings of victory return. In other words, they were under the grace of God once again. Now, the story of Ananias is to the book of Acts what the story of Achan is to the book of Joshua. In both stories, an act of deceit interrupts the victorious progress of the people of God. Folks, what you see here is giving that's a result of being filled with the Spirit. And what we see now are the results in the story of Ananias of what it looks like to be filled with Satan. So the context of this story, the unique word used by Luke, kept back, it leads commentators to believe that Ananias and his wife they had entered into some kind of understanding with the church before the sale transpired. In other words, we're going to sell the land and give you all the proceeds. But what do they do? They kept some back. What they had witnessed were people giving land, giving it all. Then they were kind of, in a sense, looked up to, those people were. And they wanted to share in that same glory. Judgment fell upon Ananias and his wife, not because they kept some money for themselves. Again, they were under no obligation to even sell the land. But because they lied to the apostles as to the amount. And in doing so, who did they effectively lie to? The Holy Spirit. Now, why would they do such a thing? Well, it says here in the text that Satan had filled Ananias' heart, just as he had filled Achan's heart. So apparently... The growth of the church caused Satan's kingdom, the kingdom of darkness, to tremble. And Satan himself, not one of his evil spirits, needed to get involved. I want you to see that point. Now, how did Satan gain such a foothold in Ananias and Sapphira's life in such a short time? Because it's only been about two months. So they could commit such a wicked, willful sin. I think the answer lies in some of Satan's schemes. I want to take you back in your Bibles. Turn to Ephesians chapter 3, verse 17. I did not put this verse up here, but I want us to go there. You're going to recognize this verse. Ephesians three seventeen. And here's a lesson in Satan's schemes. And this is going to, probably going to unnerve you a little bit. But here's the lesson. In Ephesians chapter 3, verse 17... It says, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Now, you know, if you may recall, what that means. For Christ to dwell in your heart, it means, is he comfortable in your heart, in your life? To give your heart as a home, does he have access to every area, every room in your home? Well, in this instance, I believe that both Ananias and Sapphira were believers. They are most likely part of the group that was continuing in the apostles' teaching, their prayers, the breaking of the bread, fellowship, all of that. They're part of the group that, according to Acts 4.31, they were filled with the Holy Spirit. But despite this, and here's the point, they left themselves open to the influence of Satan. Jesus Christ had not settled down in their hearts, because they had not given him full control of two areas of their lives, their finances and their pride. Do you see that? Do 
this left them vulnerable to the sin that they committed, which was hypocrisy. So we have two believers caught up in greed, concerned for their reputation, that become the first hypocrites who are identified in the church. They lied about the amount of the proceeds from the sale, but they still want to be recognized in front of the entire congregation as generous givers like Barnabas. Now, Ananias, ironically, his name means the Lord is gracious. Sapphira's name means sapphire or beautiful. But their deed was anything but gracious and anything but beautiful. So it under a vow to the entire congregation and to the Holy Spirit to give everything from the sale of the land was a pretense to withhold some of the proceeds. And the secret sin on earth is open scandal in heaven. They thought they could pull it off. The secret sin on earth is open scandal in heaven. God sees everything, folks. He sees everything. And the lie and the hypocrisy, he would not tolerate. As with Achan, this sin cost them their lives. So trying to create an impression of something you're not, to paint spiritual beauty where it doesn't exist, that's hypocrisy. And that is a great offense to God. Do you remember how Jesus consistently hammered away at the hypocrisy of the Judaism of his time, the religious leadership in Israel? Now, one of the things I appreciate about the Bible is it kind of leaves it, it tells it like it is, warts and all. And always on this side of heaven, there will be hypocrisy in the church. But the reason why this story is here is to remind us of God's attitude towards sin, and in particular, the sin of hypocrisy. Now, there are a couple points I want you to get from this, and that is the seriousness of sin. The seriousness of sin. Your hypocrisy, a spiritual hypocrisy, it is so corrupting in the church that God, in this instance, acts shockingly swift. Remember, Jesus targeted hypocrisy in his dealings with the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The holiness of God. Think about this. Just at the cusp, at the very beginning of this emerging church in the New Testament, how does God reveal himself? Holy. His wrath against Ananias and Sapphira is a demonstration of his holiness, his attitude towards sin. Satan's schemes. We need to know our enemy. We cannot be ignorant of his schemes in our lives. There was a fear of God. I mean, look at that. The fear must have been tangible. I mean, there was so much fear that the people wouldn't even approach the apostles. They were held in such high esteem because of the purity of their lives. God is to be loved and respected. And it's kind of funny because in this church, there was a great fear of God. You don't sense that in churches anymore, do you? We seem to go out of our way to make everybody feel comfortable, don't we? And there's the unity of the church. They had the unity in Acts chapter 4. There was this interruption of sin. Think of the story of Achan. Unified, victory, blessing. The sin, blessing stopped. They dealt with the sin. Unity, victory, blessing. The signs and wonders, by the way, resumed after the sin was dealt with. The church grew. Now the Lord, this is the point I want you to see about this, a pure church. 
He is designing a church based upon a commitment to purity. You see that? You with me so far? Because I'm about done here. He's designing a church based upon a commitment to purity. I'm going to reword this in another way that I think you understand it even better. The Lord is designing a church that unbelievers would not want to attend. You hear me? He's designing a church that unbelievers would not want to attend. We want to belong to this church because a church is to be a place of judgment of sin for believers and unbelievers. We would not call this church we see in Acts a seeker friendly church, would we? Visiting unbelievers should not be comfortable in the church because of the church's pursuit of what? Holiness. Purity. In fact, it is the church's pursuit of holiness that should actually convict the unbeliever of their sin. This is how it works out in the Bible. Remember this? It says, but if all prophesy, you know, just the signs and wonders happening in church, someone's prophesying. And an unbeliever or outsider enters in, he is what? He's convicted by all. Convicted of what? Of his sin. He's called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed. And so far on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. So this, the sense of the conviction of sin is a sign of the presence of God. I mean, we design churches today, unless you're aware of this or not, to make people comfortable so they hope that they come back, right? We're in competition with other churches to get the, the low-hanging fruit, the people that are discontented at our churches, so what do they do? They church hop, go from church to church. Because we want our numbers. Because it's a nickels and dimes game. That's not what we see here, is it? What matters in this passage when it comes to church? It's not that visitors are comfortable, and I want people to be welcome for sure. But it's not that they're comfortable. What matters is that God and the church leadership be held in high esteem. Because of the purity of their lives. And that's exactly what happened. The people had such an immense respect for the the purity of the church leadership. For the holiness of God. That none of the rest, it says, dare to even associate with them. God was designing the church His way. And His way, believe it or not, is going to blow you away. It's to frighten non-believers as well as to frighten believers. Isn't that counterintuitive? Oh, and by the way, what happens in this passage? The church, it doesn't just grow, does it? It explodes. Because God is at work adding new believers, not church transfers, but new believers. And so what I want us to do this morning is to ask ourselves this question. David said, create in me a clean heart, O God, renew a right spirit within me. Ask God to create in you a pure heart. What was evident in that church that we just read in Acts chapter 5, which is what I've been praying for, and I hear some of you have picked up on this, you pray for the same thing, was nothing more than what the church is to be. Within us, in this place, is to be the dwelling place of God, the habitation of God. This is where God is to be. His presence is to be here. And what drives out the presence of God? Our sin. It was the area of Ananias and Sapphira's life, their finances and their pride, that they did not allow Jesus Christ access to. Who knew that? Who knew that? Satan did in this story, and he used that in his scheming. He probably whispered in their ears that, well, 
why don't you keep some of the money back? You're under no obligation to give them all the money. You can just, just tell a lie. You won't be found out. Have you ever reasoned that way? Thought that way? You can solve the glory. Just lie a little bit. This story tells us those thoughts came from who? Satan. And this story reminds us that those thoughts lay open and bare before who? God. And he knows all things. And in this instance, instant judgment. Which is another reason why, when you sit there and think about the church discipline that happened in the Old Testament, they stoned them. We don't see that much anymore, do we? Are you telling me that there's no, that there's less sin in the church today than there was back in this time? There's probably more sin, but what, what do we do? We tolerate the sin. That is not what we see here. This is a New Testament church in Acts chapter 5. And through pain, through suffering, through painful experiences, I've just learned that when it comes to difficulties, like when I'm a pastor in leadership, I don't have a tolerance for that stuff. I've told the board this over and over again. We're not going to tolerate this stuff. We're going to deal with it. Boom, boom, boom. Because if you don't nip it in the bud, what happens? It grows and it spreads and it festers. Exactly. Know his schemes. Surrender your life completely to him. Let him dwell in your heart through faith. So do that this week. Ask God. Spend some time before him. Create in me a clean heart. Show me where I have a sin in my life that you see that perhaps I don't see. Or finally go before him and say, God, I know that I did this and I shouldn't have done it and I just haven't repented of it. Ask God for the strength to repent of it and confess it. This is to be a pure church, a holy church. Let's pray. And worship team, you can come up. We'll close with a song. Lord, we thank you for this time this morning. We want to be a, a pure church. I just think back to every church that I belong to and how there has ministered in. There's always seems to be just a, a, a toleration of sin. And sometimes we wonder why we're not being blessed. And so we turn to our our own human mind and reasoning and try these different business strategies to build a church. And it's, it, we want this church to be blessed by you, to be numbers added because you are moving here. We don't want church transfers. We want people to come to Christ. We ask you to add to our numbers those who are being saved. Lord, bless our day. Show us where you're at work and the people around us, that we may share the hope that we have of eternal life only found in Jesus Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.